Welcome to this episode in our podcast series looking at the approach of global financial regulators to non-financial misconduct and whistleblowing. I'm Duncan Campbell, a managing associate in Linklater's financial regulation practice and a contentious regulatory specialist. I'm joined today by three partners from our Singapore office. I'm Jalita Panjaitan from our disputes team. I am Laure de Panafieu from our employment team. I'm Payne Chua from our financial regulation team. In the show notes and on the Linklater's website, you'll find our global review of the role non-financial misconduct is playing in the assessment of the suitability of individuals to work in financial services and of whistleblowing requirements. This is the latest episode in our series of podcasts that accompany this publication. And in this episode, we're going to focus on Singapore. My guests will outline the Singapore regulatory framework that governs non-financial misconduct. We'll bring this framework to life with a worked example of misconduct at an office party. We'll look at the reporting obligations that firms have, and we'll examine the protections afforded to whistleblowers. Pei Ying, let's start with non-financial misconduct and get a bird's eye view of the regulatory framework. Sure, Duncan. The Monetary Authority of Singapore, or MAS, regulates financial services in Singapore. It doesn't typically regulate non-financial misconduct specifically. However, non-financial misconduct can be caught by its guidance on fitness and propriety, and can also be caught by the MAS's requirements for firm systems and controls. And what guidance is particularly relevant here when it comes to assessing fitness and propriety? That's the MES's guidelines on fit and proper criteria. They do encompass competence and capability, as well as financial soundness. But more relevantly, they cover honesty, integrity, and reputation. It's here that non-financial misconduct can become relevant. In fact, the criteria are drawn widely. For example, they can cover a complaint made not just relating to activities regulated by the MES, but also under any law in any jurisdiction and convictions or charges under any law in any jurisdiction, as well as an unwillingness to comply with any regulatory requirement or to uphold any professional or ethical standards in any jurisdiction. So it's quite clear from this that the factors can encompass conduct that is unrelated to the performance of an individual's role at the workplace. So these criteria could cover all manner of different types of non-financial misconduct? Yes, but that's not the end of the story. A failure to meet these criteria doesn't necessarily result in action being taken, such as the individual being removed from the relevant role. The guidance states that it really depends on seriousness and the surrounding circumstances, as well as the passage of time since the failure. It also depends on the relevance of the failure to the person's duties. This seems more widely and ambiguously drawn than the UK's current position. That's the position articulated in the Upper Tribunal's decision in Frencham. It's a judicial decision. In essence, in the UK, conduct must be linked to the manner in which the profession in question professes to serve the public. And it's for the regulator to demonstrate that the conduct engaged or threatened its specific objectives. So for the FCA, this might be its consumer protection or market integrity objectives. Lita, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, that's that's right, Duncan. Um, there's certainly some room for interpretation in the guidance, both in terms of how broadly it applies and then 
how strictly it is um, the implications or the consequences of it are applied. So I think we'll just have to wait for a judicial decision in Singapore or more express uh, pronouncements from the MAS and other authorities in due course and, and see whether it considers uh, in the courts the Frencham decision and what that line of authority might be as developed in that judicial forum. I see. And, and Pei Ying, what action can the MAS take when these standards aren't met? There are various options, Duncan. Uh, the key among them is that the MAS can refuse an application for authorization and can revoke an authorization. So those are the criteria for individuals. What about requirements that firms must meet when they're addressing non-financial misconduct risk? Yeah, on that, Duncan, the um, MAS issued the guidelines on individual accountability and conduct, or the IAC guidelines. Um, and those instruments are key here. So the guidelines came into force in September 2021, earlier this year, and they apply to most financial institutions that the MAS regulates. And those address non-financial misconduct risks specifically? Not explicitly. They are expressed in wider terms, but they could catch some non-financial misconduct, especially given that the requirements under the IAC guidelines augment the existing regulatory regime, so they supplement the existing rules that exist today. Further, the guidelines underscore the MES's expectations on financial institutions' responsibility to foster sound conduct standards. So the guidelines are really aimed at fostering a culture of responsibility and ethical behaviour within firms, um, and they set out five key outcomes for financial institutions to work towards. The guidelines also promote senior managers' individual accountability, strengthen oversight over material risk personnel, and reinforce standards of proper conduct among all employees. So that's much like the way that the UK's senior managers and certification regime deals differently with senior management functions, certified persons and a range of other staff. Would that be right? Uh, Laura, perhaps I'll ask you that question. Duncan, yes, that's right. So let's start with senior managers first. Firms need to identify them as a starting point, and then they must ensure that they are fit and proper and held responsible for the conduct of the business and actions of employees under their purview. Firms must also implement a governance framework that supports this. Turning to MRPs next, firms must similarly identify them, ensure that they are fit and proper for their role, and made subject to effective risk governance, appropriate incentive structures, and standards of conduct. And finally, not just senior managers and MRPs, but in relation to all employees, firms must have a framework to promote and sustain desired conduct. This includes standards on honesty and integrity. So if an employee engaged in non-financial misconduct and, and it was relevant to their fitness and propriety, then the firm may be exposed to risk? Yes, that's right. If there was a failing in the firm's framework for ensuring that its employees are fit and proper or for promoting and sustaining standards of honesty and integrity. And it might also be found that the employee's senior manager themselves did not discharge their responsibility for the employee's actions as well. Let's bring this to life then with a hypothetical example involving two employees, A and B. A is material risk personnel or MRP and he supervises B. And say during the recent team party at a bar outside the office, A sexually groped B without B's consent. The police were called and A has been charged with sexual assault 
and is awaiting trial. Uh, it emerges that B complained to the firm's whistleblowing hotline three months earlier, that A was repeatedly making unwanted sexually suggestive comments to B, despite B asking A to stop. A, a new member of the compliance team told A's managing director, C, that B had made a complaint and had discussed its substance with uh, managing director C, uh, and C said that he would deal with the issue, but he took no action. So, Law, let's start with employee A's position here. Right. So, when it comes to A's fitness and propriety, the criminal charge will be relevant even prior to any conviction, similarly to A's inappropriate conduct towards B in the workplace itself, assuming that that complaint is made out, of course. All the circumstances will be relevant to assess whether A is found to lack the necessary integrity and reputation that Paying was mentioning earlier. The offence may have reputational consequences, of course, though query whether they are sufficiently connected to A's role in this instance. On integrity, it is pertinent that A's conduct was directed at a person that A supervises. This could also have an impact on the assessment of A's competence and capability to discharge his role. Okay. And what about managing Director C? Well, as far as C is concerned, similarly, assuming that the allegations are made out, C is highly likely to be seen as having failed to discharge his responsibility for the actions of A, who he manages. The fact that this was brought to the attention of the whistleblowing hotline and reported by a member of the compliance team to C obviously aggravates the events and the fact that C failed to take any action. The fact that C is a senior manager also is, is um, relevant in this instance because as such, he is held to and must meet higher conduct standards. And what about the firm's position? So the MAS may look into whether the events reveal any shortcomings in the firm's framework to promote desired employee conduct broadly, to ensure that senior managers and MRPs are fit and proper, and to make employees subject to appropriate standards of conduct. Employee A's conduct may also be relevant, of course, to MAS's assessment of the firm's culture. Julita, this is a good time perhaps to touch on investigation and reporting obligations. Yes, it makes sense, Duncan. That's certainly something that would be in the minds of most of our clients facing this kind of uh, scenario. Uh, the area of misconduct notices in Singapore is is in somewhat of a state of, of flux and revision at the moment. But perhaps if I, I try and kind of lay out the, the state of play at the moment, and uh, at least we can enable our listeners to know that uh, there are some changes coming which they can keep an eye out for. So there are certain misconduct notices that have been issued by the MAS under um, various statutes here, the Securities and Futures Act, the Financial Advisors Act and the Insurance Act. And those are all applicable to this kind of scenario. The MAS will also be revising the misconduct reporting regime to provide greater clarity in the near future on the existing misconduct reporting requirements for certain representatives. So to give you a, a bit of a short history, if I can, on these recently finalised changes to the regime, in July 2018, so a few years back, the MAS issued a consultation paper to seek some feedback from the market on proposed revisions to the misconduct reporting requirements and um, proposals to mandate reference checks for representatives, uh, so that's employees at financial institutions and broking staff conducting regulated activities. And then in May earlier this year, 2021, the MAS set out its responses to the feedback that it had received on those proposals. And, and those responses will then ultimately be reflected in the revised uh, misconduct notices. Those are still to come, perhaps a Christmas present awaiting us from the MAS. 
Also in May this year, uh, with those responses, the MAS issued a consultation paper uh, to seek feedback on that proposal I'd mentioned a moment ago to extend the mandatory reference checks uh, to other classes of individuals working in the financial industry. So under the revised misconduct notices, which as I said, are yet to be issued, we anticipate that financial institutions, which fall within their scope, um, will have to lodge a misconduct report with the MAS within 21 days instead of the 14-day timeline, which has previously existed under the notices. And I must say, just as a sideline, that many of our clients have really struggled with that time frame in circumstances where they've been looking to spend time establishing within their internal processes and governance frameworks, uh, whether they are satisfied that the relevant matter is reportable. So actually the extra seven days I think will be helpful, especially for large institutions. Sorry, so to go back and say that the um, 21 day time period will uh, come to apply. And that runs from the point at which the financial institution establishes with reasonable certainty that misconduct has been committed. And so you can see why sometimes it may be a little unclear whether or not that time has started to run. And then those firms have to report uh, misconduct falling within certain reportable categories that will be set out in the misconduct notices when they are released. And we were talking before about, as you said, uh, how we will know whether uh, certain forms of misconduct are viewed by the regulator as really going to questions of integrity and fitness for relevant roles within the institution. So that will be further clarified, we think. You mentioned before uh, talking about internal investigations, the notices will also uh, require firms to conduct internal investigations into misconduct and submit their investigation reports to the MAS, uh, as well as taking appropriate disciplinary action in response. So in this example we have here of the assault in a bar, the firm would need to conduct an internal investigation? Yes, Duncan, I think so. Um, I think it's very likely in this sort of scenario. Uh, obviously, we've we've set it up in such a way that, that there are arguments probably in both directions as to whether the matter was outside the course of relevant employed activity, as it were, or closely connected. And I think, as Laure mentioned earlier, some of the connections to the, the supervisory relationship between the individuals, the fact that perhaps they were at an event that was somehow connected with them and um, going out as part of, you know, post-work, etc. I think probably we're close enough to the to the workplace and also the fact that, of course, it was reported within the workplace that an investigation both into the conduct itself and probably into the conduct of the senior or supervising person who failed to investigate previously would both be relevant uh, next steps in this situation. Obviously, in every situation, firms will consider whether or not a matter that has arisen it has some kind of level of materiality or seriousness, as we, we also alluded to earlier, uh, that would make it one that, that warrants a proper investigation. Also, I suppose the question being whether there's any, uh, any doubt about the facts or, or the events that took place, whether a full investigation or what level of investigation will be needed. But I think certain factors, not only as, as to the conduct itself, but when we think about seriousness, I think we also take into account the seniority of the employee or employees in question, because that goes to the heart of the proper exercise of responsibility in the organisation. So I do think it's quite possible in this in this situation that the firm would need to conduct some form of investigation into both aspects of the matter and then uh, ultimately find itself filing misconduct reports, both in relation to A's uh, sexual assault on uh, B, but also in relation to C's failure to manage the situation appropriately when it, the issue was previously brought to their attention.
So, Laura, let's look at whistleblowing now. And compared to other jurisdictions we've surveyed, there might not be as much to say on this in the Singapore context. Is that right? That's broadly right, Duncan. Um, Singapore doesn't have a general framework to protect whistleblowers. And I would like to add yet, um, because no doubt this is a developing area, in particular, given the stance the MAS is taking with regulated firm. At the moment, Singapore specifically protects certain groups of whistleblowers in various pieces of legislation, but that is a piecemeal approach rather than an overall protection for whistleblowers who are there to report wrongdoing in their general employee capacity. One of the examples that people in Singapore will be familiar with is that uh, employees and, and others actually are protected if they report corruption, and that is set in the specific legislation called the Prevention of Corruption Act. Another area where whistleblowers are protected is auditors. And so auditors are protected from defamation suits and liability if they report fraud in good faith. Pei Ying, is there something specific to financial services firms? Yes, there is, Duncan. Um, outcome 5 of the IEC guidelines deals with enforcing expected standards of conduct for all employees. As part of this, Outcome 5 requires financial institutions to implement a formalized whistleblowing program. So this would include reporting channels available to employees, procedures to ensure anonymity and adequate protection for all employees. That said, the IEC guidelines do not in themselves go into detail on the specific protections that firms should give their employees or indeed how firms should respond to reports. So this is really a developing area of practice. I see. And how could Outcome 5 apply to the hypothetical example that we're discussing? Yeah, in in this situation, the MES will likely uh, consider the holistic circumstances um, before it decides what, if any, action it will take against the firm. So, for example, the MES will likely note that the compliance officer did not preserve B's anonymity, and the compliance officer also did not independently investigate the complaint um, and instead relied on C to address the complaint, and that C did not actually address it. So if the circumstances warranted, for example, if the MES finds that this particular event reveals a more systemic problem with the firm's governance framework, then the MES has broad powers to take action against the firm. So this, these may include certain financial penalties and reprimands. Thank you, Pei Ying. And, and that's all we have time for. I'd like to thank my guests on this episode, Jalita, Law, and Pei Ying, for their insights into the ways the Singapore regulators are grappling with these difficult issues. If you're interested in learning more, then in the show notes, there's a link to our webpage where you can find other episodes in this podcast series on non-financial misconduct and whistleblowing, together with our full publication on the approach to non-financial misconduct and whistleblowing in 12 key financial centres, including Singapore. And remember to share and subscribe to this podcast feed for more insights from us. Thank you for listening and goodbye.